Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us a figure well-known to First Things readers, Yuval Levin. He is Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at American Enterprise Institute. He's the editor of the prominent journal, National Affairs. His previous books include... The Fractured Republic, Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism, and The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left. We have a book that came out a couple of months ago, which is our topic today. It's called A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. That's our topic today. Welcome, Leval. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Well, let's jump right into the book. Uh, you, you begin by going back 20 years to the end of the 20th century. And one thing you note that I think is a good reminder for everyone is how different things felt. Now, let, let's get away from the specific events, but how things felt at that time. You even call it uh, something of uh, a feeling of a dawn taking place. And now we are uh, into... A, a mood, a national mood of twilight. You're borrowing from the, the sociologist Robert Nisbet. What are the prominent characteristics of our twilight condition? Well, you know, I think it is worth thinking back to the attitudes that uh, that characterized our expectations in the 90s and early 2000s, even those of us who uh, never bought into the end of history stuff, uh, which I think most people never did. Um, there was certainly a sense that we were at the start of something, that there were there were reasons to expect a, a, another American century to be dawning. And, of course, there are some such reasons, but the last 20 years have left us feeling down, have left us with a sense uh, that our society is coming apart in some respects, uh, have left us with a sense that we're living through some kind of a social crisis. You can see that in in the partisan polarization that characterizes what happens in Washington. You can see it in the state of the culture war, the sense of siege, that somehow both people on the left and right manage to feel besieged. Um, you can see it in a in a, a sense of alienation that pervades our politics now, uh, and even in people's personal lives, in rising suicide rates, in an epidemic of opioid abuse, I think we have a sense that we are m- closer to the end of something than the beginning of something, or that maybe we're experiencing something like a, a, uh, a twilight age, as as you mentioned, Robert Nisbet coined that wonderful phrase in the 70s. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it leaves us with a sense that we are confronting some trouble 
And it leaves us with a politics that doesn't spend much time thinking about the future and that doesn't appear to be building much for the future, but that's engaged in struggles for control and in a culture war that in a lot of respects is about cultural power. It's certainly not the the dawn we might have hoped for, uh, or at least it doesn't feel that way. It's sometimes hard to know if our mood is really justified, but that is certainly the, the reigning mood, I think. Uh, one reason that you assign for our, as you say, hard to know condition is that we tend to look at the social scene in terms of these two poles of the gigantic state and the small individual. And there's there's a big component in between, and that's the institutions that you really highlight from the title onward. Why do you turn to institutions here? What are we losing when we, when we don't take those into account? Yeah, I think there is a sense in which we see right through institutions in our society. In some respects, Americans have always inclined that way. Uh, our culture is rooted in a certain kind of uh, in a certain kind of Protestantism that's maybe uncomfortable with mediation and uh, tends to think about uh, directness as uh, as as equaling authenticity. And so we're a little bit uncomfortable with institutions, even though we as Americans have always been natural institution builders. Um, and, you know, I think in this moment in particular, as you say, there is this kind of polarity of the individual and the central state. And our politics tends to think in these terms. And of course, we think of these as opposites, but they actually reinforce each other. A radical individualism where people feel like they're on their own leads you to think about politics in very centralized ways. This is an argument that has been made at least since Tocqueville in the in the early 19th century. And our politics inclines to think in these ways now, where we discount what happens in the middle layers of society, from family and community, through the institutions of civil society, even in our economy, and in the mediating layers of our political life, uh, at, at, uh, the layers of state and local government, we tend to think as individuals and we tend to think about politics in a national way, even about culture in a national way. And I think that blinds us to where we mostly live our lives, which is in these mediating institutions that have an enormously important formative role in shaping us to be capable of being free and seeing those institutions, understanding what we owe them and what they do for us could help us understand this otherwise very difficult to define moment a little more clearly, I think. Let me let me jump on one one point. We'll, we'll step out of the book for a moment. The book you wrote mostly in 2019. It came out a few months ago. It did come out before the the current demonstrations and riots and protests and, and toppling of statues. It seems to me that nothing that has happened in in the last six weeks contradicts anything that you say in the book. Although you don't you you actually said at one point we're not seeing violence and, and so on. But it seems that you are warning that the estrangement, the isolation, the the loss of institutions as formative role, you know, p playing a formative role in people's lives, played a part in the current troubles. Does the violence and, and the and the anger and the protest does that surprise you? Did did you did you feel like if this isn't fixed, something like this is coming? You know, I think a lot of us have probably gone through the last few years a, a little bit surprised that we haven't seen more violence in the streets um, because the intensity of our politics and the breakdown of our of our common culture 
seems to have been pointing in that direction for some time. I certainly hope we don't see more, but I think we can't be shocked when this happens. And I would also say the the way in which I think about the degradation of our institutions points in something like the direction of what we're seeing, which is that we've come to we've come to lose sight of the formative role that institutions play. And instead, we think of them as performative. We think of them as providing platforms for people to stand on and be seen to be taking the side of the right party in the culture war so that f- from from our political institutions to our academic institutions and professional and corporate institutions, we find people using them as stages to stand on and and show off their their part in the culture war. And that has led to a very performative way of thinking about our roles as citizens. And I think what you're seeing on the streets is very performative. Whatever else it is, it is a kind of display that's attached to an, uh, an, an evolved kind of uh, identity politics that isn't fundamentally directed to political action, to civic action. It isn't really building very much that could endure So, you know, in our history, even when you think about mass protest movements, often they've been ways of showing strength. So in ways that that have political relevance, that relate to the lives of our institutions. I don't think that's what we're seeing now. I think what we're seeing now is a show, is a performative show. And it's almost like uh, social media made real. And that does, I think, relate to the the collapse of our expectations of institutions, our confidence in institutions in ways that uh, that point to trouble. You know, when you say that people see their own institutions, the ones they work for, the ones they from whom they, they collect a paycheck, they don't really feel that strong loyalty or even feeling like I, I am formed by this institution. They are platforms. And it makes me think that Mark Hemingway was on. Uh, a couple of episodes ago saying, talking about the New York Times affair with the op-ed by by the Senator Cotton that led to massive numbers of reporters at the Times protesting and threatening to strike. And Mark said, you got to remember that a lot of these reporters have their own Twitter platforms and they have 200,000 followers, which gives them an independence from the institution that they work for and frees them to trash the institution. That, that they work for. What, what kind of, what, what is going to happen to an institution in a situation like that? So I think that's a great example, and it's actually an example that I take up specifically in the book in thinking about the, this transformation from mold to platform as it's presented itself in some of our professional institutions. One of the things I look at is journalism, and, it, and even specifically the New York Times, where I think you have in a very prominent way a kind of generational divide Uh, of institutional attitudes, where some people think of a place like the New York Times as a place that they need to be formed by, that that shapes them in ways that then empowers them, and that they can use the the credibility built up over time by journalistic institutions to, to advance their own work and to be heard and taken seriously. And a lot of other people, particularly younger people, I think it's a very generational difference, Tend to, tend to think of the New York Times as something like an extension of what they had on the elite college campuses that they almost invariably came from, and that they see it as a platform, as a place to stand um, and take part in the culture war. They do not expect it to be formative of them. They don't see it as imposing strictures and requirements and professional standards in ways that allow them to be heard. They can be heard directly. They have a platform on social media, as you say, 
And, you know, if you check in on Twitter right now, you'd find a lot of professional journalists basically deprofessionalizing themselves by systematically blurring the line between their professional work and their personal opinion and even just their personalities in ways that show that they don't see a distinction between one platform and another. And I think what we're seeing at the Times is just that, is people using uh, a, a, a long-standing institution of American journalism to basically play a part in the culture war and perform. Now, we shouldn't idealize what the Times ever was. I mean, the New York Times has had this problem for a very long time, and a lot of our institutions have been politicized in the past. But I think what we're seeing now is a, a transformation of the very idea of what it means to play a part in the life of an institution that is is evincing itself in a lot of different parts of American life in this way, in this similar way, the transformation from a mold that shapes us to a platform that displays us, and that has a lot to do with the character of the culture wars we're engaged in. You know, as a consequence of this, you have an evocative epithet in the book. You call it something people are suffering from as, quote, social shapelessness. What do you mean by that? Well, the book begins from a premise that, uh, that, that is a, a very conservative premise, which is that we enter the world uh, imperfect, unformed, uh, fallen maybe is the term to use, and we require formation before we can really be citizens of a free society, before we can be trusted with a lot of freedom, before we can be effective uh, as mature adults in this society. I, I, that didn't used to be a particularly controversial idea, but I think it is a controversial idea now. The notion that we require formative institutions before we can be free. And when we deny ourselves those institutions, when we don't see them as formative, the church, the school, the community, the civic institution, the, the professional institution, the academy, then we are, left, we are left shapeless. We're left on our own, performing on a platform, and denied the kind of formative structure that can allow us to connect with other people in a constructive way. I think that has a lot to do with the alienation, isolation, loneliness that people report these days, is a, a sense that w because we don't belong in any of those institutions, because it doesn't seem like they're there for us, but, but rather they're there as a way for American elites to, uh, to stand and be seen, we have a lot of trouble connecting with the life of our society. And I think you find a lot of Americans who are, uh, the right word is alienated, from that society. And part of the reason for that is the absence of these mediating institutions that can help to build affinities, that can help to build civic relationships that can fight that kind of alienation in a, in a democratic culture. Are, are those affinities that institutions help provide uh, what gives people, another term you mentioned, quote, social capital? Yeah, you know, social capital in some ways is an ugly term, and I I, uh, I, I hesitated some to use it, and there's a kind of long f f end note in the book uh, about this term and why I do use it. I think social capital is a cold way of saying a warm thing. Social capital is really, you know, it, it resorts to the language of social science so that people who are not inclined to the language of religion can be comfortable with it. Uh, and it served that role, and that's fine. But what I really mean is a sense of belonging and a, 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 a way of understanding this society as yours, as ours, uh, thinking of it in the, first in the first person plural, which I think is the way we have to think about our society together. Um, and ultimately, social capital 
involves the way in which we are formed to understand ourselves as something as part of something larger. And the absence of these institutions, the absence of their formative role, makes it hard for people to build social capital. I think contemporary American culture offers us a lot of ways to spend social capital and very, very few ways to build it. And those ways are less and less available to the people who need it most, the people who are not in a privileged place in our society. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about privilege in our elite institutions, but in fact, they are all now in the business of basically denying social capital to the people who need it most. They've become selective and exclusive in ways that are not open to their roles in the larger society. And I think that there are a lot of people who basically lack the opportunity to build that social capital that they need to be fully part of our society. And it's hard to blame people in that situation for feeling alienated. You actually spend some time blaming the institutions themselves, or at least the current leadership, maybe the leadership of the last 30 or 40 years of those institutions. And I, I don't know if you want to give us an example of institutional failure from within. And well, why don't you give us an example? And then I'll have a follow up question about about institutions. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of ways to think about that. You can you can think about institutional failure in terms of this kind of transformation from mold into platform. You can see that in our politics, for example, where people basically run for Congress now, not so much to take part in the internal work of the institution as legislators, but to use it as a stage to stand on and be seen, to build a social media following, to get a better time slot on cable news. So where it might have been the case that people would seek a microphone in order to get power, people now seek power in order to get a microphone. And prominence in the in the culture war is seen to be the, the goal, the reason why they go to the enormous trouble of running for office. And I think that ultimately is a failure to understand the nature of the institution that they're a part of and ends up being an institutional failure. You can see it in a different way in the university, where I think we've got a dramatic institutional failure driven precisely by the institutional elites themselves who have lost sight of the fact that the, the, the purpose of an academic institution has got, to under, has got to be understood through the medium of teaching and learning. Whatever it is engaged in, whether that's providing skills for people, whether that's uh, enabling people to really seek the truth and uh, and 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 the, the deepest kinds of uh, treasures of our civilization, whether even that's about changing society and some form of social activism, which has always been part of university life, that has to be done through teaching and learning. And I think what happens in the universities now too often is not teaching and learning, but performance, but a, a kind of culture or performance art. And that is a fundamental failure of an absolutely crucial institution uh, both for building social capital and for sustaining a free society. I think you see that in a lot of institutions now where a lot of what's gone wrong certainly has to be uh, has to be understood as a failure of institutional elites to understand their obligations, to understand the constraints that they ought to be under given the, the power they have and the responsibility they have. Um, and the cost of that is a cost that the entire society ends up paying. You know, it, it reminds me of, I have a friend whose father is about 85 years old, and he's, he's an alumnus of Amherst College. And he was so angry two or three years ago, the father was, because the president of Amherst came out and denounced the college for its history of racism. And the, the, the alumnus, he, he just couldn't believe, why, why is the leader 
of this college trashing this college. Uh, I mean, you, 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 you represent it. And Amherst College has some great things in its past. Calvin Coolidge went to Amherst. And it, 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 was, it was really something he didn't understand that there was a new relationship that the leaders of the college obviously had to, to the institution. What do, you, what do we say to, to, to that old gentleman about what's going on? Yeah, you know, this, this kind of inclination to self-flagellation in our institutions is, is, I think, in part a function of the fact that people don't think of it as self-flagellation. They see themselves as outsiders in their own institutions, and so they approach them as commentators and critics rather than thinking in the, in the first-person plural uh, and understanding themselves as continuous with the history and tradition of that institution, so that where there may be things to criticize, there are also things to build on. And both of those have to be done in the spirit of an insider. Part of my concern in the book is that everyone who, who ought to be an insider in our society now inclines instead to think of themselves as outsiders, to stand aside with, with a kind of cynical distance and criticize. And look, criticizing is important. Critics play a crucial role in any free society. But you also need people to take responsibility. And so the notion that a member of Congress is fundamentally a critic of the Congress or the president of a university stands outside of it and speaks about its past as if it's about other people uh, is a tremendous problem. It's ultimately a failure of responsibility. And I think it has to be understood that way so that the way back involves some recovery of the capacity to take responsibility. Before there can be institutional reforms, and some of those are needed, and I talk in, uh, about some of those ideas in the book. But before we can begin to think about institutional reform, I think people have to start to understand their own responsibility through an institutional lens to say, given the role that I have as a university president or a professor or a member of Congress or a citizen or as a pastor or as a congregant, given my role here, how should I behave? I think just asking that question could help a lot of people with real power in our society think a little differently about how they're using that power in ways that could be much more constructive for all of us. You do have a great section on Congress. And one thing you point out was that Congress used to be an institution that really formed people. So the idea of a, of a Congress, a 32-year-old 30, congressman being elected and coming into Congress for the first time and being handed a very large a very large megaphone, microphone, what was unthinkable in, in 1950. You're a junior congressman, you learn the ropes, you, you, you develop. Uh, this, the, the advent of an AOC or the squad who become ferocious critics of, of, their, own, of their own party even, how, how did that happen? I mean, you, you tell a long story. Maybe you'll just give, give us the skeletal version of how that came about. Yeah, I mean, it, it is another instance of people who are insiders who are strive and strain to see themselves as outsiders instead, and also just a, a, a different attitude toward the role they have in an institution. And again, I think always it's worth being careful not to be not to overly idealize that old reform, and there were elements of corruption to that, there were ways that it stood in the way of necessary changes. But all of this is a matter of degree, 
And I think we've gone way too far in the direction of a kind of outsiderism in our institutions where people arrive at an institution like the U.S. Congress basically viewing it as a way to elevate their own profile, to build their own uh, their own standing and to do it by performing. So that if you now attend a congressional hearing, what you'll find is a, a number of individual members each basically producing YouTube clips to use at election time. They're not engaging with each other. They're not engaging with whatever witnesses they may have. They're not really doing legislative work. They're looking at a camera and uh, and putting on a show. And you certainly see that with AOC, who basically, I think, understands herself as a kind of cultural performer. Now, it's not entirely new. Our politicians have always had, there's always been some element of uh, of rhetoric and performance in politics. But I think the degree to which it's gone has totally distorted the function of the institutions involved. You, you make a statement, a powerful indictment, quote, Congress is weak because its members want it to be weak. Why would they want it to be weak? Yeah. So... A lot of a lot of times, conservatives like me look at our constitutional system and say the administrative state is much too strong. The courts are overbearing. These things are true, but I think they're they're happening because Congress is too weak, and Congress is too weak because members now don't incline to want to take responsibility for making hard decisions, which is, after all, their job. Uh, and and so Congress, rather than rather than make decisions about hard questions and and embody those in law, tends to state broad goals uh, and say, you know, the secretary shall pursue this and that, leave it up to the administrative state to decide what that looks like, leave it up to the courts to clean up the mess that inevitably results from that. And all that Congress, and then Congress can step in and, and criticize both the courts and the administrative state for how they do these things. And I, I think at the core of the trouble in our constitutional system now is a power vacuum created by Congress. Now, politicians are still ambitious. That hasn't changed. James Madison was right about human nature, but their ambition now is driven in the direction of a kind of performative politics where they want to be prominent performers and critics. They want to have a big profile in our political culture. And you achieve that not by not by legislating, but rather by by being a, a, a public figure, a performer. And so we've, we're left with a very weak Congress that has really thrown our constitutional system out of balance in a dangerous way. You've got a great episode of performativity in, in the book uh, relative to the, uh, an episode that happened at a Trump rally uh, a few years ago. And it's, it's a clip that did go on, on YouTube. It was when Jim Acosta is on camera and he's trying to broadcast, you know, in sort of this immediate interview. To, to the camera describing what's going on and all a lot of the people around him start chanting things like fake news go home and worse and that was much discussed but what you bring out and i'd never heard this before is what happened right after the camera stopped rolling what did happen yuval yeah so it turns out that after the camera stopped rolling uh, Acosta came out of the CNN booth and uh, some of the very same people who had been uh, attacking him and even threatening him in some ways uh, approached him and asked him for, for signatures, uh, asked him to sign their MAGA hats, uh, posed for selfies with him. And it turns out that they were kind of in on the show and so was Acosta and he signed these hats and he posed with them for uh, for selfies. 
he knows that they're part of the reason why he uh, has such a prominent platform. And they know that part of what they're doing is engaging in a kind of political performance art. There's a way that some of what's become of our national politics is something like professional wrestling, where there's not exactly a script, but everybody knows, generally speaking, what roles they're supposed to play. And they're doing it with half a wink, and there's just not enough of a distinction between uh, between politics and entertainment. And a lot of what happens in politics is fundamentally directed to entertainment rather than to self-government in a more traditional sense. And that kind of episode is really a way of seeing in an unusually clear way just what it means to say that our politics, our political institutions have become platforms uh, and that a lot of what we're seeing is reality television. You know, you actually end the book on something of a hopeful note in that you map out some directions for reforming these institutions. Can you, as we wrap up here, can you, can you give us two concrete directions for improvement? Well, I'd say to begin with, what's required is a change of attitude. The challenge of institutional reform is that it has to be desired by the people within our institutions. And that means that it has to start with an understanding of the problem, which is really the purpose of the book, is to try to articulate the problem in these terms and help people see that by asking that question that I mentioned, given my role here, uh, how should I behave, we can begin to see a little more clearly what responsibilities we all have, because we all play parts in various institutions, uh, and how we could do a little better. Beyond that, I, I do think that there are also specific institutional reforms that could help us, especially that could help impose some responsibility on some of the elites in our society. I, I spent some time toward the end of the book talking about meritocracy, which uh, it, it was certainly an attempt to answer some of the problems with uh, the American elite, but has also created a very, very problematic new elite in America that does not think of its role in terms of responsibility at all, and does not think that it owes much to the larger society. And I think we've got to constrain our elites not only by asking how can people enter the elite, which is what meritocracy does, but also by asking what do leaders in American life owe the larger society? And I think that has to be channeled through institutional responsibilities. And then in particular institutions, there are certainly ways that we can help Congress work a little better. Uh, I argue about putting some constraints on transparency, which may not be the most popular way to think about Congress. but. Congress has become too transparent so that everything has become a show. Uh, I think there is a need for, uh, for a resurgence of the academic ethic in the university, for people to think in terms of teaching and learning. A lot of this can be very Pollyannish without that first step, which is to, to see and say that what's happening here is a failure of responsibility and that it is very widespread. In some ways, we probably all take part in that. I think by beginning by seeing that, some of these other steps might become a little more realistic. The book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Thank you all. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 Three three two two nine three zero.